Uh, we're in the second and final week of our series, My Big Fat Mouth, and um, thank you guys so much for being here, uh, especially after hearing week one and not declining your request uh, this Sunday to serve, but coming back and hearing another message over just the power um, of words. If you weren't here um, last week by some chance, I would really encourage you to go to our website and listen to the message, not just because I taught it, um, but because uh, we really discovered kind of how our words affect us and our relationship with God. Um, and we did that uh, kind of coming to the conclusion that um, sometimes in life, God will open a door for you to change your circumstance. And if he does that, then you need to walk through um, that door. You need to do something about it. But if not, then we might need to change our perspective on our circumstance. And I don't know about you guys, but I actually found myself this past week um, saying to myself, as well as conversations I was having with other people, you know, asking kind of the question of, okay, is God opening our door for this circumstance to change? Is he not? Okay, well, then I need to change my perspective about it. Um, and so I hope that that message was really encouraging to you guys. I know that it was um, for me. But this week, we're going to talk about how our words affect others. And if we're being honest, this is probably probably the thing that we struggle with the most when it comes to words is how our big fat mouths affect other people around us and how other people's big fat mouths affect us. Um, Because unfortunately, we have probably done some damage to people in our life, even those that we probably care about the most um, with our words. We've probably had damage done to us. Um, But on the other side of that, we've also hopefully seen how words of encouragement can really empower someone and maybe give them that extra push of belief in themselves that they need to really push through whatever maybe they're going through in their life or or take that kind of leap of faith to something that maybe they need to be doing with their life. And I hope that most of you in this room have also been encouraged by somebody else's words in your life, somebody really speaking, empowering, encouraging words of life um, to you. In fact, this week, I actually experienced both sides of the coin of that, of the power of words, and in the same conversation with the same person. Um, So one of my old college roommates, uh, she's out of town, And so she called me this past week and left me this voicemail um, on my phone. And this is what she said. And I actually wrote down the exact words to the voicemail because I wanted to make sure that I got it right. Um, But this is what she said. She said, hey, Jenny, I just wanted to call and let you know that I just listened to your message from Sunday. Um, I saw you post about it um, on Facebook. And I thought to myself, this has got to be good because if anyone knows about having a big fat mouth, it's you. And you know what? It was awesome. Great job. I can't wait to hear the message this week. Um, and, and, and so you see how in one conversation, words can encourage and discourage at the same time, right? And in my roommate's defense, she was obviously being, uh, she was joking about that. But in my roommate's defense, she did know me best when we were in college. And praise Jesus, he's done a lot of work in me in the last 10 years. So she's not wrong with what she said. Um, but we can use our words in several different way. And so this week, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how our words affect others around us, but we're going to do it through the lens of talking about the problem of criticizing. Criticizing. And I'm not talking about like um, constructive criticism. I'm not talking about the feedback that we give to people that we care about 
in a loving way to make them better. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the critical, nitpicking, unkind, uninformed, cruel criticism that often goes on. Um, Whether it's done to us or we participate in it, it's a problem. It's the problem of criticism. And right now, some of you are smiling because you're thinking to yourself, oh, I'm so glad my spouse is going to hear this message. Or you're thinking, I'm going to send the link to this message to my boss or to this coworker or to this friend. But I need to remind you that this message is called my big fat mouth, not their big fat mouth. And so I want us to obviously look at this message and listen to this message through how we participate in the problem of criticism. Because the thing about criticism is that it's really easy to do. And it's really easy to be hurt by. But so often, we don't realize that we're also criticizing. Because we think we're very justified whenever we criticize, right? Like, we think we're justified because we think we know what's best for that person's life. Right? Like, God has a great plan for that person's life, and so do I. And if they would just do the plan that I think is best, well, then I wouldn't have to criticize. Right? If they didn't dress so weird, or they weren't so dumb, or they didn't spend their money so unwisely, well, then I wouldn't have to criticize them. I'm very justified in my criticism. But what I want to do is I want to walk through a couple verses... And then a story kind of at the end um, to illustrate how we aren't justified in that. And uh, what I want to do is I want to start off with a very popular verse in the Bible, okay? Um, One that even if you have not been studying or reading the Bible or even been a Christian for very long, you're probably familiar with this verse and you're going to recognize it. Um, Even if uh, maybe you haven't been a part of a Christian faith for very long. But here's the thing. Chances are you're going to recognize this first verse, but you're not going to be very familiar with the verse that follows after it. Okay? So we're going to be, again this week, we're going to be kind of all over um, the Bible. So if you want to follow along with us, great. I would love for you guys to. Their verses are going to be on the screen like they are every single week. Um, And so if you want to maybe just write the references down when you're taking notes, you can do that as well. Um, But I'll give you enough time to flip there if you want to as well. So the first verse uh, that we're going to look at, this very popular one, it's going to be in the book of Galatians. So uh, this was written by the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Galatia which is why it's the book of Galatians. Um, And we're going to be in chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 14 through 15. All right, so let's look at what Paul said to the believers in Galatia. He said this, verse 14. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. All right, okay. That's pretty familiar. We, We... We talk about that a lot, right? But then read verse 15. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. All right, so he says in the first verse, in verse 15, he says that the whole law can be summed up, right, in this, in this one command, which is love your neighbor as yourself, right? And again, most of us would agree with that. We think loving your neighbor, that's a great thing. That's definitely something that we should do. But Paul is saying that when you have negative words toward one another, you can actually undermine your ability to love your neighbor. 
In fact, negative words not only can undermine your ability to love your neighbor, it can actually destroy your neighbor, is the wording that he uses. And he says, be careful of destroying one another. If you're always cutting into people with your words, if you're always using harsh words, be careful of destroying one another. But then he doesn't just say, love your neighbor, period, right? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. And the best way to make sure that your words aren't biting and aren't destroying is to speak to others the way you would want to be spoken to. How would you want to receive feedback about something? Would you want to receive feedback about something, that particular thing in your life? We have to love our neighbors as ourselves, even with our words. That's what Paul is saying. And so then that makes sense why he puts those two verses back to back, right? But a lot of times we just like to stop at the, oh yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. But he's actually saying if your words are so biting and so um, destructive, you can completely undermine your ability to be able to do that. Anyway, what if for some of us, our words are actually destroying, destroying the potential intimacy that we could have in our marriage? What if our critical words are driving a wall between us and our kids? I mean, what if there's those of us that our critical words are actually keeping us from sharing the goodness of Jesus Christ with people around us? Because no one can stop, no one can get past the fact that we are critical about anything and everything that comes along our way. Be careful that your words are not hurting those that are around you. And then I want to look at another verse, and this is a con- what I call a, a, a part of um, a group of verses in the Bible that are contrasting verses. And the reason I call them contrasting is because they um, basically address both sides of a topic at the same time. I don't call them contrasting because the Bible's contrasting itself. That's not why. It's because in one verse, it basically shows you the vo- both sides of this particular topic. And actually, a lot of the verses that have to do with how our words affect other people around us are contrasting verses. And so this is one of those. And, and listen, I absolutely love this verse. In fact, if there's literally one thing that you remember from this message this morning, I hope it's this verse, okay? And not necessarily maybe something that I said, but, but this verse, because it's that powerful. So we're going to look at Proverbs twelve eighteen. Proverbs twelve eighteen. So if you want to flip there, you can do that. But this is what it says. Listen to this. It says, some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. So here's, here's one side of it. It says some people make what? Cutting remarks. Right. Thank you, Rachel. But some people, they, their words bring healing. And a cutting remark, you guys know what that is, okay? It's, a, it's just like this. It's like if your grandma calls you and you answer the phone, and she says, hey, did you, did you lose your phone? You're like, no. Why, Grandma? She's like, well, because I haven't heard from you in two weeks. I could be dead. No one would know about it. That's a cutting remark. That's a grandma burn right there, okay? That's what a cutting remark is. It's one of those that at first you're like, well, this person might seem concerned about me. And then boom, right at the end comes the cutting remark. 
right? That's what a cutting remark is. All right, but some people, they cut, they hurt, they criticize, but other people use words of wisdom and they use those words to build up, not to tear down. They actually create healing. And I've experienced this in my own life. Um, and, and isn't it true that when someone says a remark that's cutting, a remark that hurts us, how we never really forget that, right? We, we remember that. I still remember words that were said to me 10, 15, 20 years ago like it was yesterday. Because cutting remarks make scars. And that wound may heal, but you still have a scar. And every, time, every single time you look down at that scar, you still remember the trauma that you experienced. What created that scar? You have no idea whatsoever how a single word of criticism can pierce somebody's soul and how it can stay with them for years and years and years. When I was five years old, I remember overhearing my kindergarten teacher um, telling my mom I was never going to learn how to read on grade level, that I just wasn't smart enough. Those are cutting words. But I also remember that very next year, my first grade teacher looking at me right in the face and saying, hey, listen, I know reading is hard for you, but that doesn't mean that you're not a great reader. And you know what? I'm going to make it a point that by the end of this year, you're going to be reading on a second grade level. I promise you that. Those are healing words. Right When I was a freshman in high school, I remember my volleyball coach uh, pulling me aside and telling me that um, it really didn't matter that I had a great skill set for volleyball right then, that I really needed to start focusing on another sport because I was never going to be tall enough or skinny enough to really be competitive in this sport. Cutting words. But I also remember another coach pulling me aside and saying, hey, you know what? I would take passion for this sport over skill or physical appearance any day because you can't coach passion. Do you want to play volleyball next year? Yeah. Well, great. Meet me here every morning this summer at 7 a.m. and we'll make sure you make that team. And you know what? I did. Those are healing words, right? Now, remember my sophomore year of college, um, a professor telling me after I preached my very first sermon for a preaching class that I was in, looking at me and saying, you know what, it's a real shame that you're a woman because you sure can teach. Cutting words. But what I remembered in that moment and what I responded to him by saying is this, is that, you know what, thank you. I'm confident that God has gifted me for ministry, so he'll, he'll find a place for me to serve and teach. And the reason that I was able to respond to him in that way is because I immediately remembered when I was 13 years old, standing up at my home church in front of 300 people, sharing with them that the weekend before I had made the decision to place my trust in Christ, and that for the first time in my life, I felt loved and accepted. And after that service, my pastor walking up to my parents with me standing there overhearing and looking at my parents and saying, you know what, you probably already know this about Jenny, but she is really special and she has a real gift for communication. I think God's going to use her in a big way in his kingdom. Those are healing words. And so some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring 
healing. And I don't think that we understand um, definitely in the moment or maybe even after how much one word of criticism can take somebody down. But the same is true for wise and encouraging words. I can tell you this. I'm here today. I'm standing here today teaching, not because I believed the words of that professor, but because I believed the words of my pastor when I was 13 years old. And so many others that have come after him and said, you know what, I really think you should continue to pursue this particular gift. I think you would be really good at this. Words of encouragement. God can use that to build faith and hope into someone right at the moment in which they need it. And so here's what I want you to ask yourself today. Here's the big question for today. It's this. It's what kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? Not what kind of person are you, but what kind of person do you want to be? And I'm going to give you two options. Here's the first one. The first type of person I'm going to fall, call a fault finder. A fault finder. And this, quite honestly, is what most people are because of our sinful nature. Um, because of our sinful nature, we tend to look to find what's wrong before we look and find what's right in somebody or in a situation. I mean, it, this is true kind of the, the origin of where this comes from is true. Um, and we saw this last week. Do you remember what Jesus said about words last week? If you don't, I want to review it real fast. It's Luke 6.45. And he said this, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Our words are an overflow of our heart. And here's the thing, most people fall in the category of fault finder because it's so easy to be a fault finder. It's so easy because it's the natural pro propensity that we have as human beings because of our sinful nature. Because of our sinful nature, we can take a relatively good person and we can have them tore apart by lunchtime, right? I don't like the way you walk. I don't like the way you chew. I don't like the way you breathe. I don't like the way you pronounce words. I don't like the way that your fork runs across your teeth when you're eating. You guys are laughing, but you're laughing because you've thought these very same thoughts before towards people, right? We can really tear someone apart in a matter of seconds, right? And we see this to be true in all situations that we're in, right? I mean, we can walk into the office and we can say, you know, I don't like the way that she runs meetings. I don't like the way that they're presenting this information. We don't have a real plan here. This is the most boring, stupidest place I have to spend my day. It's so easy for us to criticize, you know? We look at people's social media and we can say, you know what? She loves Jesus. She says she loves Jesus, but it looks like she really loves her body to me. I mean, I'm not judging or anything. That's just the facts. That's how we can come across. But here's the thing, when we're fault finders, we're a lot like a group in the Bible that Jesus really opposed. They're called the Pharisees. This is exactly what 
the Pharisees did. And if you aren't familiar with the Pharisees, they were Jesus's kind of greatest opposition. But ironically enough, they were also the religious leaders of the time. And whenever someone would sin, the Pharisees would point out the sin and then they would accuse. But then Jesus would come and he would also call out the sin. He would call it what it was, but then he would offer hope. And he would offer them a chance to walk away from the bondage of sin. I want to look at um, a story in the Bible and... um, this is probably one of the stories that I get the most passionate about uh, in the Bible. And so it's in John, it's in the book of John, chapter 8. Book of John, chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 2. Um, but I want to read this story together because this story completely encapsulates the stark contrast between the Pharisees' response to sin and Jesus' response to sin. And it's probably one, especially the people in this room, you've read before and you're familiar with. But as I was researching this, there was something that I kind of pulled out from this story that I'd never realized before. But look at, uh, look at the response of the two different people, the Pharisees and Jesus. We're going to start in verse 2. It says, At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, him being Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. This, those who heard, began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir. She said, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So there's this woman, right, and she's caught in adultery. But what did the Pharisees do? Well, the Pharisees said, hey, stone her. The law says put her to death, and they weren't wrong. That is exactly what the law said. But the Pharisees looked at that situation, and they pointed out everything that was wrong. Do you see how our words are a condition of our heart? Sometimes we can be like the Pharisees. Our actual words are not wrong. Our actual words may be true. The words that the Pharisees were saying was not wrong. In fact, that is what the law of Moses said. But it was the condemning tone. Almost their uh, fervor for judgment that they were bringing to the situation. Their heart was to condemn, it was to judge, it was to belittle this woman. And in that case, it honestly almost didn't even matter what their words were. Didn't even matter if their words were right or not because the tone of criticism spoke so much louder than any words that they could have chosen in that moment. 
But look at how Jesus responds, right? So instead, he kneels down and he starts writing something. And it doesn't tell us what Jesus wrote. I mean, we, it doesn't say he wrote this in the sand. It just says that he was writing in the sand. Um, but many scholars believe, and I, I tend to agree with this theory, is that he was most likely writing something like a list of the sins of the, of the Pharisee men. Because it says shortly after that, you know, they start leaving one by one oldest um, to youngest. They start walking away. But then Jesus, he kneels down in the sand again. And to this woman who's broken and she's full of shame, she could not have been more embarrassed on a public forum than what she is. He, he looks at her and he just says, hey, where are the fault finders? Where'd they go? Where are your accusers? And she just tells them that they're gone. So then Jesus says, well, then you know what? Neither do I condemn you, but hey, don't do this anymore. There's a better way. He says, go and don't sin anymore because you know what? You can find forgiveness. You can find hope. You can find real love. You don't have to live the way that you're living. But do you see the difference in the two response? And so who do you want to be? What type of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a fault finder? That's what the Pharisees were. And here's the thing. I think there's three main reasons why we tend to be fault finders. I think the first one is just pride. I mean, I think that's all it is. I think it's just because we are full of pride and we think we know what's best. And so we find fault in other people because, again, we don't think they're doing things the way that we think should be done, what we think is best. And then the second reason is that I just think it's because we're insecure. We're insecure. And it's so easy to criticize others on the very things in our life that we are, find weaknesses that we're insecure about. Because if we, can, if we can criticize them, then it makes us feel less insecure. It makes us look better. Like we're not struggling with that as much. And then here's the third reason. I think it's because sometimes we just don't understand. We just don't understand. That's one of the main reasons why one of our family values here at Real Hope is that we are a friend to people who are different than us. Because we recognize that, you know what, while God creates everybody in his own image, that doesn't mean that we all look exactly the same and we're all robots and do things exactly the same way. Sometimes we criticize because we just don't, we just don't understand. We don't have enough knowledge of the situation. And instead of taking the time to gather facts and gather, knowledge, gather information about the situation, it's just, it's easier to criticize, to jump to conclusions. And I, I used to do this very thing, especially when it came to parenting, right? Like if I would see somebody in a grocery store and their two-year-old is just losing their mind, right? It was so easy for me to be like, oh my gosh, I would never let my kid act that way. Like I would immediately fix that problem. But then guess what? I had a two-year-old in a grocery store throwing a fit and you quickly realize like you cannot negotiate with terrorists, you realize that despite the fact that it may be bad parenting, you're offering, like, you want a pony? You want a Porsche? I don't care. Just get in the car if you'll stop throwing this fit right now. You don't care. Sometimes we criticize because we just don't have knowledge of the situation. 
We haven't walked in that path before, right? And here's the thing. When we criticize, a lot of times, here's what we're thinking. We tend to think, well, this makes me look smarter, right? Like this makes me look like kind of the expert on this particular subject. It shows just how good I am, but it doesn't. That's not what it makes you look like. When you're criticizing, all it makes you look like is that you're mean, You're insecure and you're mean-spirited. That's what it looks like. And so I want to ask you this. I I want you to ask yourself this question. When you're thinking about the type of person that you want to be, ask yourself this question. Have you ever met a critical person that you want to be like? Have you ever met a critical person that you want to be like? Think about it for a second. I bet most of the people that you look up to in your life or you respect, they're not critical, fault-finding people. Because no one wants to be like that. No one looks up to someone that's critical. So do you want to be a fault-finder? Here's a second option. Do you want to be what I'm going to call a hope-giver? A hope giver. What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a fault finder or do you want to be a hope giver? And we'll look at uh, Romans, the book of Romans. We're going to be chapter 15, verse 13. Uh, This is what Paul has to say about hope. He said this, I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's saying. He's saying, may the God of hope fill you in such a way that you have so much joy and peace that you just place all your trust in him. And through that, you're going to overflow hope from your life and everybody around you, not through your own power, but through the power of, your, of the Holy Spirit. Because remember, our words are an overflow of our heart. And the Apostle Paul, he was like the chief hope giver. If you're going to look at somebody um, as an example of being a hope giver, the Apostle Paul was the chief hope giver. Anytime he spoke, anytime he wrote, anytime he said anything, he acted. He never tore people down. He was only going to build them up. Even when he was correcting churches that were out of line, even when he was correcting believers that were out of line, he didn't do it by tearing them down. He did it by building them up and pointing them back to Christ and who he was. He was never going to let any unwholesome talk come out of his mouth, but only that which was helpful for building people up. He was really a supreme hope giver. And in fact, if you read some of his writings, you'll see this. So I picked Romans chapter 8. Don't You don't have to turn there. In fact, I actually want you guys for just a minute to close your eyes. I know this might make some of you feel weird. I always feel weird when people ask me to close my eyes in a group setting, but no one's going to scare you or anything, I promise. But I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to just listen to some of the highlights that I picked out from Romans chapter 8. Listen to these words of hope. Now, therefore, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. 
Paul said that the Holy Spirit helps you in your weakness, that Jesus is making intercession right now at the right hand of God the Father. And he said that you are more than a conqueror than Christ Jesus. Those are words of hope and healing. And then he finally said this, he said, neither death nor life nor demons nor angels, neither power of the present or the future, neither height nor depth, neither anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can open your eyes. Those are words of hope and healing. So do you want to be a fault finder or do you want to be a hope giver? Hope givers use their words to love and to heal, to build up, to inspire, to give encouragement. Fault finders use their words to devour and destroy. And you have no idea, you have no idea how when you criticize your spouse, what that does to their self-esteem and what that does to the intimacy in your relationship. You have no idea that when you're overly hard on your kids, how it belittles them and distances them from you. And you have no idea how foolish you look when you criticize and criticize and criticize and you think it's making you look better, but it's not. It makes you look insecure. But the thing is, is that you also have no idea how one word of encouragement, how God can use that to change the course of somebody's life. You have no idea how when you say to someone that you see Christ in them, how that makes them want to be more like Christ. So here's the thing. Your kid, they may not be the tidiest, neatest kid, and that might really annoy you, but you know what? They've got a great heart. And so tell them that. Tell them, you're amazing, and I I love you. I love the way that I watch you speak to others. You're a great friend. That's what a hope giver would do. You know, your, your wife may not be the most organized person, but she's an incredible mom. So instead of being a fault finder and trying to pick her apart for what she's not, why don't you be a hope giver and build her up for what she is? You know, I love the way that you love our kids. I'm so glad that I married you because there's no one else that can impart the joy and the love on our kids that you do. Words of life, words of life, words of life, words of life. They're so important. And you guys might have noticed that I'm super (laughs) passionate about this. You might ask yourself, why? Why are you so passionate about it? Well, here's the thing. I'm so passionate about this because I was the worst fault finder that you've ever seen. The absolute worst. Right? When I, I, throughout most of my 20s, I was so incredibly insecure that I had to find fault in everybody around me to make me feel better about the fault that I constantly walked around with every single day of myself. I tore down because I wanted everyone to think I was the smartest person in the room. I was the expert on um, the particular subject. So what did I do? I criticized. And instead of finding good in what God was doing, I just picked people apart, picked organizations apart. But the thing that's crazy is that the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know, (laughs) that there is so much in this world I don't know. 
And the closer I get to God, the more aware I become of my sinful nature. And the more aware I become of my sinful nature, the more aware I become of the magnitude of God's grace. And that because of who he is and what he's done for me, I don't need to waste time criticizing the speck in someone else's eye when I have a log in my own. I need to do some work with God and I need to figure out how to get the log out of my own eye. I don't need to be concerned about the speck in yours. And the closer I get to God, the more I realize because of what he's done in my life, because of how he's redeemed me, how he's sustained me, how he's brought me to a relationship with him, then I don't want to tear people down. All I want to do is point them to the same relationship that I get to experience every single day. And the best way to do that is to be kind and encouraging. The Bible actually says that it's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. It's our kindness that shows people Christ not our criticism. And when we grasp that, all of a sudden, our words begin to emulate those of Christ. The one who sustains and who renews and transforms our heart. In the transformation process of our heart, that's when our words begin to transform. Your words don't transform by you just having enough self-control to shut your mouth. That only lasts for so long. Trust me, I know. Your words transform when your heart begins to transform and you begin to see people the way that Jesus sees people. When you begin to realize how incredibly grateful you are for the sinful, messy brokenness of a person you were and how Christ redeemed you and he wants the same thing for everyone else. Out of the overflow of the heart is where the mouth speaks. And I want to start speaking truth and love um, not because I want to make somebody better, because I want to point them to the person who made me better. I want to begin to speak life. I want to encourage one, one another daily. And here's the thing. When our words begin to emulate those of our creator, the one who sustains, the one who renews, the one who transforms our heart, that begins to transform our mouth as well. And so here's what I want to encourage you um, with this week. Is this week, I want you to remember what type of person you want to be. Do you want to be a fault finder or do you want to be a hope giver? And then I want you to pray and I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to begin to transform your heart. To fill your heart with those things that are good. To fill you with the hope that you have from your relationship with Jesus Christ. So that that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can be the thing that overflows to those that are around you. So that you can be a hope giver. Your words can be those that are wise, that bring healing to people.